0: Nice to see everyone this morning. Just while I sort my books out, do you mind if I tell you uh, a quick dream I had last night? Is that right? As many of you know, I I enjoy a swim and things like that. And I had a really weird dream about um, swimming in a vast expanse of orange soda. It was okay, though, because it was just a fantasy. Hey! Did you like that one? Thank you very much. I'm only here for half an hour. You'll be alright, don't worry. Okay. I am a 1980s boy. I was born in 1975, so I kind of grew up in the late 70s. And uh, in the 80s, put your hand up if you grew up in the 80s. What a decade it was. 1980s. Who remembers these guys? Ted Rogers and Dusty Ben. Three, two, one. Don't try and attempt to do the free tour. Every time I did that, I did a rude sign because I always started the free the wrong way round. I'm not going to do that up here. Ted Rogers and Dusty Bin, Murder She Wrote, Jessica Fletcher. Oh, I had a hidden thing in my heart for Jessica Fletcher. What a woman! In fact, I wanted to marry someone like Jessica Fletcher, and I did. What a woman! Truly remarkable. She peers round corners with torches. (laughs) What's going on? Jessica Fletcher, I sure she wrote. And who remembers the Hamburglar? And Ronald McDonald. He's the scariest advert for fast food you are ever likely to see. Ronald McDonald. I actually think that kids start eating a lot more burgers when McDonald's withdrew Ronald McDonald. I think they should bring back Ronald McDonald as the face of advertising to put everyone off of bad food. He's the scariest clown I've ever seen in my life. So let me take you back to 1980. I was five years old, and I learned something about a family line of someone that was really important to me. Here's the story. I want you to imagine an older guy over six foot dressed in black with a big black mask on and he's having a fight with a younger lad dressed in light grey and they're in a place called cloud city on a planet called bespin okay and they're having a fight with laser swords or lightsabers the younger one dressed in grey with his lightsaber catches the arm his name's luke catches the arm of darth vader and darth goes ow <laughs> That's oh, not bad. It was a bit growly at the end. And, and Darth's not happy about that, okay? And the fight carries on. Darth gets his revenge by chopping off the hand of Luke, who then backs away from Darth. This is actually the film set. You can see all the... <laughs> Luke Skywalker's going to fall off there in a minute into a load of um, old duvets, and you've got, like, the, the, the guy setting up the scene, his head's in the background. Anyway, Luke backs away from Darth Vader and Darth trying to get him across to the dark side to the bad side and then the biggest twist in film history comes out Darth says to Luke see unbelievable he says I am your father I lost two nights sleep after finding that out two nights sleep that I'm never going to get back again Luke Skywalker had a dad and it was Darth Vader. The biggest twist ever in the history of film and a family feud that no one really knew what was going on. But it was definitely, definitely happening. What we're going to look at this morning is the book of Obadiah. With plenty of drama in its backdrop. We have a long-lasting history, family feud of one part of a family persecuting another part of a family. Oh, hello there. That's weird. Darth Vader's comeback is the force. That's scary. This is the backdrop of Obadiah in the story of another story of the minor prophets. The obvious difference is, is that this book of the Bible wasn't written by George Lucas and turned into a Disney film. Which is a shame. Disney film of Obadiah and the Minor Prophets will be something to see. This is a, a, a real story. A message of the living God given to a prophet called Obadiah who has to bring a message of judgment to a group of people. This is a message of the utmost importance. It's a book whose author had, been, had heard from God himself had a message of judgment to bring, and that judgment would definitely happen. The primary characters or nations, those involved are primarily Edom, who are the descendants of Esau, and Israel, the descendants of Jacob. But the message also includes all the nations of the world. And Obadiah is the guy chosen to bring this message. I'm sure he was delighted. ...to have brought such a message. As we've been going through, there's been a timeline that we've been using. Here's where Obadiah fits in. What I'm going to do, I'm going to quickly go through what Obadiah is as a book. Um, it's overarching message. Then as we go along, we are going to try and condense it down and down and down... ...so that it leaves us with something for today. There's Obadiah just there with a green circle. Obadiah, the shortest of the minor prophets, it only has 21 verses... So this morning, I'm not just going to choose one part of that, because that would just be weird. I'm going to choose, we're doing the whole book, okay? You never want someone who's studying Deuteronomy to say that. (laughs) But doing Obadiah, because it's only got 21 verses, we need to take the whole thing, okay? Obadiah is a common name in Israel, meaning worshiper of Yahweh. And this Obadiah probably brings this message just after the destruction of Jerusalem, which you'll see there, which falls in 586. BC. As I've already said, you hear about the nation Edom, who are proud of her own security, has gloated over Israel's devastation by foreign powers. It's also Edom's participation in that disaster. Edom sat back and watched, as well as participated, that actually brings God's judgment upon that nation. God, in the end, says, as you've done, I'm going to repay you back in kind. The attitude of Edom towards Israel has spanned centuries. We're not just talking about a one-off moment as we go through. This has spanned centuries of persecution from one nation, Edom, to Israel or Judah. Why have I said that? I want to say that because it shows that God has been gracious on this nation. He has given it time. He hasn't seen something really bad and like some sort of overbearing, stroppy person comes straight in far too heavy. This stuff's been going on for centuries. And so at this time, at the right time, God comes in and brings judgment. God's gracious, but he's definitely just. God is gracious, but God is just. We need to remember that the Edomites and Israel are actually relatives. Edomites come from the descendants of Esau. Judah or Israel come to from the descendants of Jacob. Jacob and Esau were brothers. So years after year after year after year after year, there's this being kind of like family dispute going on. But it's always been Esau on the back of Jacob. The heart of God must have been breaking when two brothers, descendants of two brothers, through and through and through, there's still this stuff happening. The fact that the hostility of one brother's nation towards another makes the whole story even more detestable and painful in the eyes of God. See, God's heart breaks. For injustice. Before we carry on, we need to remember two things. He's slow to anger and he's very rich in love. The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. Sometimes we can read some of the minor prophets just off quickly without setting it in the right context and think, actually, God's this big monster. He's no different today as he was then. The attitude that he carries now, he carried then. What I'm going to do, I'm going to read it out, but I'm going to read it from the message. Okay, I'm going to ask for your patience a bit as I do this. Me and my wife were sitting there like, do I read out the whole thing? And actually, yeah, I want to. What I've done up the top there, the book of Obadiah is broken into two sections. Verse 2 to 15 and then 15 through to 21. I've given a brief explanation of each bit in there as I read it. I'm not asking you to follow in your Bible, I'm going from the message. I just want you to listen. What we're going to do to start with, we're going to read verse 2 to 15. This is the message of God against proud Edom. Your world will collapse. Obadiah's message to Edom from God the Master. We got the news straight from God by a special messenger sent out to the godless nations. On your feet, prepare for battle and get ready to make war on Edom. Listen to this, Edom. I'm turning you into a no account, basically bankrupt. The runt of the godless nations and despised. You thought you were so great, perched high among the rocks, king of the mountain, thinking to yourself, no one can get me, no one can touch me. Think again. Even if like an eagle you hang out in the higher cliff face, even if you build your nest in the stars, I'll bring you down to earth, this is God's sure word. If thieves crept up on you, they'd rob you blind, isn't that so? If they mugged you on the streets at night, they'd pick you clean, isn't that so? Oh, they'll take Esau apart piece by piece, empty his purse and pockets. All your old partners, Esau, will drive you to the edge. Your old friends will lie to your face. Your old drinking buddies will stab you in the back. Your world will collapse, and you won't know what hit you. So don't be surprised. It's God's sure word. When I wipe you all your sages of Edom and rid Esau's mountains of its famous wise men, your great heroes will desert you. Taman, there'll be no one left in Esau's mountains because of the murderous history compiled against your brother Jacob. You'll be looked down on by everyone. You'll lose your place in history. Edom, on that day when you stood there and you did nothing, strangers took your brother's army into exile. Godless foreigners invaded and pillaged Jerusalem. You stood there and watched. You were as bad as they were. You shouldn't have gloated over your brother when he was down and out. You shouldn't have laughed and joked at Judah's sons when they were face down in the mud you shouldn 't have talked so big when everything was so bad, and you shouldn 't have taken advantage of my people when their lives had fallen apart. You of all people should have not have been amused by their troubles and the, you, by their troubles, their wrecked nation you shouldn 't have taken the shirt off their back when they were knocked flat, defenceless, and you shouldn 't have stood waiting on the outskirts and cut off the refugees, traitorously turned in helpless survivors who had lost everything. to you get the message of what Eden was like towards Judah? And this had happened over centuries, okay? The message is, the message against proud Eden, thinking big of themselves, at home in the heights, even the heavens, never to be moved. That was their thinking. God comes and says, but I'm going to strip that away. Your friends and your allies are going to abandon you. And just as you've given... I will repay you in kind. Here's the second part, 15 to 21. This is God speaking to the nations, but to Israel, and, or Judah as well. God's judgment day is near for all the godless nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you did will boomerang back and hit you on your own head. Just as you parted on my holy mountain, all the godless nations will drink God's wrath. They'll drink and drink and drink. They'll drink themselves to death, but not my soul... But not so on Mount Zion. This is the bit to Israel. There's respite there, a safe and holy place. The family of Jacob will take back their possessions and those who took from those who took them from them. That's when the family of Jacob will catch fire and the family of Joseph will become a fierce flame. While the family of Esau will be straw. Esau will go up in flames. Nothing left of Esau but a pile of ashes. God said it and it is so. People from the south will take over Esau's mountains. People from the foothills will overrun the Philistines. They'll take the farms of Ephraim and Samaria. And Benjamin will take Gilead. Earlier, Israel, our exiles, will come back and take Canaanite land to the north of zarapath I'm doing well with the names. i got to be honest, for a Sunday morning. Jerusalem exiles from the far northwest of, uh, of uh, oh, here we go, Sepharad. And come back and take on the cities of the south. The remnant of the saved in Mount Zion will go into the mountains of Esau and rule justly and fairly a rule that honors God's kingdom. Thank you for being patient to listen to that. You can't just take one bit. We've got to take the whole message. Here's the message, verse 15 to 21, a message about Israel and to the nations. All the nations will receive judgment like Um, edom israel will be delivered everything restored back to them and they will walk into the promises of god so what do we do with this i'm going to keep condensing it down and down until we get to something that today what what does this show us it gives us good history but what can we walk away with what does the message mean then for the nation of edom what does this message mean the nation of Edom. If you're Edom, in all honesty, it's not the best of messages. It's not. Okay? Obviously. God himself is getting involved to bring judgment on them as a nation because of everything they have done to their brother Israel. It's going to boomerang right back. They're going to get paid in kind as they have done. The message Again, it's the same for all the other nations who are opposed to God and his people. He's a God of love, but he's a God of justice. Okay? Imagine Edom. You're in that nation, and you get this message that God's going to bring judgment on you. All your allies are going to turn away from you. Your security is going to get taken away. You're going to be paid back in kind, and God will use other nations to bring you down. Because of your pride and actions against God and your brother nation Judah, you're going to be judged according to what you have done. That's the perspective of Edom. But there's obviously more to the story than that. Because you've got the nation of Judah. And I honestly think, to the nation of Judah, this is going to be the biggest message of hope that they have heard For a very, very, perhaps for a very long time. I don't know. I think it came at a good time. They might have wanted to hear it before the fall of Jerusalem. But it didn't happen and I don't know why. But for them, they would have wanted to have heard it. So the message of the people of God is hope. It's a prophetic message which came after a great loss for the people of Israel. In this message, it clearly shows that God has never once left them alone. He has always had his eye on them, even when they were going through such destruction. Why does this judgment bring hope to Israel? I sometimes feel like, What is it about judgment that brings hope? Because the judgment for Edom isn't obviously brilliant. I I guess I'm looking at it overarching. But why would it bring such hope? Here's what what it it got me thinking. For me, it sets again Israel's assurance in him who acts on their behalf and who doesn't change. Do you get what I mean by that? Are Are you following this so far? Put your hand up if you're following it so far. It's important that you know that you're following it so far. Okay. Edom are oppressing the brother nation Judah. And they've done so for such a long time. Judah have been for a really horrible time. Okay. God bringing judgment on. So for Judah, when God speaks for Obadiah at this moment in time, I honestly think that it sets again that God has never left them. And that his standards have never changed. Because if he's allowed some things to happen, they could easily be standing there thinking, has God changed? Has God left us? Is God not true to his word? Has his standards dropped? Because actually we've been allowed to go through all of this stuff. And so for this nation to hear the message of God at this moment in time, it is so assuring. It sets again the assurance in him who acts on their behalf and who doesn't change. He's the ultimate standard of what is right and what is wrong. He's the ultimate judge. And also the God that acts upon the standards, because if he didn't, it would be as if sin was okay. If God never brought judgment, it would almost be as if he was sitting there thinking, that's okay. You go and carry on and do what you like to my people. That's all all right. If God never acted, it would almost be as if God wasn't bothered about sin. And that's wrong. That's not right. Imagine if sin went unpunished, even today. Imagine if there weren't a judicial system. Imagine if there weren't a punishment for wrong what would that be like? That scares me. I don't know what the world would be like if there weren't a clear right and wrong and judgment upon wrong. Imagine if sin went unpunished. So we have a righteous God who judges wrong and this is a good thing. It stops wrong from happening. There's a judgment that says that's that's not right. It doesn't stop it, but it says that's not right. We also have an all-powerful God who is able to make judgment happen, even to the point where he uses nations to bring judgment. This speaks of a highly supreme God who is in charge. And the perfect mix of judgment and sovereignty is a wonderful to know, because if we had an all-powerful God who was unjust, I don't think I like the sound of that. But if we had a perfectly righteous God who wasn't all powerful, I just don't know what he'd be able to do about it. So we have a God, the God of Obadiah, who speaks, who is clearly sovereign and clearly righteous and has the perfect mixture of both to be able to bring the judgment that is needed at this moment in time. Is that okay? It's a bit deep, I know, for a summer holiday talk. we run the Minor Prophets. Someone said to me this morning, well, are you looking forward to it? And I was like, yeah, 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 but I wouldn't really like to be sitting around uh, a wedding table having a dinner with a minor prophet. I'm not quite sure they'll be the most exhilarating of people because of the message they bring. But this is the message that they bring, and it's a big message. Israel find great hope in their God again because he asserts his commitment to his people and shows he hasn't changed one Little bit. God brings a message of hope. He never left you alone. He hasn't changed. Just because the nation are going through a rubbish time, He has not changed. He hasn't changed His standards. He's with you. He's going to restore you. He will take you forward. He will bring you out from oppression. He will work on your behalf and He will judge your enemies. That's the message to Isaiah. Not Isaiah. Israel. You can tell I was on holiday last week. What does this show us today? It shows us this. It shows we have a covenant, faithful God who is sovereign over everything and works everything out according to his plans and his purposes for good. First thing he shows us is we have a covenant God. We have a covenant God. God keeps his promises. Years before this moment in time, he spoke to Abraham a bit later. He spoke to Moses in Exodus 19 verse 5 and he said this. This was God's promise to his people. If you obey me and keep my covenant, out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God never went back on his covenant at any time during this point. He is a God of promise. When he makes a promise to his people, he keeps it. He keeps it. Might not be the way that we like it. Might not have been the way that this nation liked it. But he kept it. He's a God of promise. He's willing to help his people. And he's 100% committed to them. What else? does the message of Obadiah show us? It shows that God is sovereign and God is not afraid to use his sovereignty. The message of Obadiah clearly shows God intervenes in time and uses people and nations, even those that don't necessarily follow him, he uses them according to his will. That's a big sovereign God. That speaks of someone who is in charge and I'm not. It's a sobering thought. It's a very sobering thought. God is sovereign. He uses all things to carry out his purposes. God is in charge. And he's able to help his people. Overall, I love it. It's brilliant. I love it. I think it's this. God is willing and God is able to help his people. Let me give you an example of what willing and not able might mean. I've just come out of holiday. And on holiday, when we were there, there were flumes. You know, like the water slides, things like that. There was one that had quite a solid base to it. And it was very short, the shortest of flumes. I thought I could manage that. So I go down. But I I'd go down and I sit up ever so slightly. And I manage... <laughs> I'm, I'm being really open and honest with you this morning, guys. I hope you appreciate I'm opening up my heart to you at this moment in time. I managed to get a friction burn on my backside. <laughs> and it really hurt to the point where I checked my shorts later. And there was, they were nice red shorts. And there was a white friction mark that long on the back of the short. I won't tell you what any more information than you need to know. This happened in day three, and so from day four for the rest of the time, I was not able to enjoy the fun of any more water slides. I did try, believe me, and it got to the point where <laughs> I tried. Um, I was willing, but I was not able. Let me give you an example of, of, of being able and not willing. Anyone been to Lincoln Cathedral? At Lincoln Cathedral, they do something really annoying called, we would like you to give a suggested donation of five pounds. Let me tell you that a suggested donation sign makes me willing, able, but not willing. There's something about a suggested donation sign that really gets up my back. And I just, if you want me to pay, just ask. Don't make me feel guilty for going through. Actually, I don't feel guilty. I feel a real sense of strongness come over me. And I walk past and I walk through, and then I feel guilty and buy a coffee or something like that. So I think, well, at least, at least it's worked out. There are times where I do feel willing, but not able, able, but not willing. It's like giving a tip to a waiter for a short lunch. No chance. Anyway, um, there are times <laughs> there are times where I am able, but not necessarily willing. We have a God who is chosen. Actually, chosen to be both willing and able to step into time to come to the salvation of his people. He is willing and he is able. I want you to take that message about because end it there. He is willing and he is able. Brilliant. How do we see this message today? Are you okay? Yeah. How do we see this message today? It shows a message. We have a covenant faithful God who is sovereign over all and who works out all things according to his plan. He's willing and able to get involved in behalf, on behalf of his people to bring deliverance, hope, leads them forward into everything he has for them. According to his promises, everything, willing and able. He is still the same This day in August, in a hot room, as he was when he led his people through seas and oceans. When he delivered them from other nations. The stories of the Old Testament, he is that God now. Now. He has not changed, he is not different. He is the same God I am pleased to say that we do live in a different age, though. And that is the age of the cross of Christ. And we're going to see that the God of Obadiah, who brought judgment on Eden and who fulfilled his promises to Judah, how he is exactly the same God today as he was then. God is still a covenant God. He's still a covenant God Hebrews twelve twenty two to twenty four. Give me a minute. Hebrews is in the Old Testament, isn't it? <laughs> Hebrews twelve, twenty two to twenty four. Here's what it says. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful celebration, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. If you're a Christian, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We have learned something in the Old Testament about covenant. God will not go back on it. He will not leave his people. Carried out over to a new covenant he has made with you and you have made with him, he will never leave you. His covenant and promise with you is as sure as anything else that will ever be promised to you, it's above and beyond. It will not fail. He will not leave you. In your darkest, most difficult time, it does not mean to say that he has walked out. He is a covenant God of promise. Lasting promises. He is the same as he was. Let me take it to Colossians one fifteen to 22. I don't think I'm going to read that. I don't know if we've got time. Colossians 1, 15-22, talks about the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is sovereign. He's supreme. We have a supreme, sovereign saviour. We have a supreme, sovereign God. He was there before this point, actually, when everything was made. He was there. Firstborn from among the dead. I'm going to leave you to read it. There's no one like him. There never will be. There never, ever will be. He's made a covenant with you. He's supreme. Shows he's the same as he ever was. God is still very willing and still very able to get involved on the behalf of his people and actually humanity. John 3, 16. Jesus came. The dying son got involved. He was willing. And he was able to come and to bring salvation and change and life and a way forward and hope the hope of God himself to us. The God of the Old Testament is exactly the same as the God in the New Testament. And I think it brings it so much more to light in the life and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It does. We have a wonderful, all-powerful God who is a covenant God. He's still sovereign and he's definitely willing and able. I'm going to round up by telling you a quick story and um, and leave you maybe with something. Hopefully not an image of me in a pair of shorts limping. Okay, there's a guy who goes by the name of Viktor Frankl. You might have heard of Viktor Frankl, I don't know if you have or not. Uh, Viktor Frankl, he was a Jewish-Austrian psychologist who over the years... Um, was developing a new therapy called Logotherapy. Logotherapy is a therapy that is based on when people find meaning, then if you find meaning in life, then that is such a way forward out of different places where people find themselves. And um, so he was a psychologist working out this stuff. He'd written manuscripts and ideas and different things. Anyway, in 1945, during the Second World War, Viktor Frankl was taken prisoner because he was a Jew, and was moved around four different concentration camps, including Auschwitz. He was kept alive mainly due to his medical abilities, so he was used basically in the camps to keep certain people alive, to keep, I don't need to go into the story, to keep the whole thing going. He knew at some point that he would would be killed. He was kept alive and used to his medical abilities, and in his account, There's a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Amazing book. He witnessed the base level of humanity that you could ever imagine. Base level. He writes about his experiences. Listen to his account when he arrived at um, Auschwitz. It's not harrowing, okay? I just want to get a point across. This is what he says. Let me recall that which was perhaps the deepest experience I had in a concentration camp. The odds of surviving the camp were no more than one in 28 As can easily be verified by exact statistics, it didn't even seem possible, let alone probable, that the manuscript of my first book, this was everything that he had written, he actually had on him when he went in to um, the concentration camps, which I had hidden in my coat when I arrived at Auschwitz would ever be rescued. It was basically taken from him. Thus I had to undergo and overcome a loss of my mental child. And now it seemed as if nothing and no one would ever survive me neither a physical nor mental child of my own. He was saying, this is the end. What's the point? So I found myself confronted with the question whether under such circumstances my life would ultimately be void of any meaning. Not yet did I notice that an answer to this question with which I was wrestling so passionately was already in store for me and that soon, therefore, this answer would be given to me. This was the case when I had to surrender my clothes and and, and an intern inherited the worn-out rags of an inmate who had already been sent to the gas chamber immediately after his arrival at Auschwitz Railway Station. Instead of the many pages of my manuscripts, I found in it, I found in a pocket of a newly acquired coat, one single page torn out of the Hebrew prayer book, containing the most important Jewish prayer, the Shema Israel. How should I have interpreted such a coincidence? He says, other than to challenge to live my thoughts instead of merely putting them on paper. It breaks my heart. I'm like, this guy carries on writing his therapy about finding meaning in the dirtiest, most base place of humanity. He found meaning and developed his his, his psychotherapy and goes on to help countless amounts of people. He chose. He was able, when he walked into that camp, he chose to be willing. He chose to be willing and make the choice where he said, do you know what? This is on paper. Here I am. I'm going to live it out. That's what I think Jesus did. Here's the promise. It's written, but here I come. I'm going to fulfill it. applying it today, God is willing and able to get involved in your life. The message of Jesus is a new covenant that brings salvation to anyone who believes. This covenant is unchanging and lasting. It's complete and full and is the only way. The only way. Our God is sovereign and works all things to his purposes. Guys, he's definitely for us. Here's what I want to leave you with. I'm going to go off to Bex Hill. I think Ali's going to come up. We're going to do a response of a song. How does this message make you feel? Corporately. For me, it's like, wow. It reminds me of how big, sovereign, amazing, loving, righteous God is. We've got to keep coming back to who is my God. John said at the start, it's not based on how we see him. It's based actually on who he is. Who is he is to start, not who we make him to be. It's a response for me. I'm like, is a big response, corporately, personally, just a bit of help. For me, when I'm thinking, how do I apply this stuff? I sit there and think, I, I recognize where I'm at now. How, what's that doing in me? And then I think, what would it be like to know God more in this? And start to come up with promi- like what are promises of God, and like wow, what, what, what does He want to lead me into? And then I think from this moment, what am I going to commit to? Then, God, I'm going to pray. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to read more about this. I'm gonna get some more understanding. I want you to become change my life and just grow me as a disciple of someone that follows Christ. Lead me on through this message. I'm going to leave it there being really patient in a hot room i'm going to hand over to alid ali's going to lead us in a song and um yeah So, if you need the forgiveness and the compassion of a saviour, why not talk to the person that brought you or chat to the people uh, just inside the double doors there on the the, the connection?